it's kind of funny. It made um, uh, researching the packages for the, yes. this week's episode of the podcast uh, a little bit more difficult than than usual. Yeah. Um, so what we're talking about is that you may have noticed if you visited the package index over the last couple of days that readme files are not rendering on package pages. Um, and we had a little... A little bit of technical debt that hit us um, squarely uh, in the front of, uh, in our faces this week. Um, so a little bit of background to this is when we implemented the readme file um, rendering inside package index, um, we originally did it with a markdown processor, a, a GitHub flavored markdown processor. and um, rendered the so grabbed the raw readme file rendered it out to some html and then did some fixes to fix up kind of image paths and things like that and then over time there were edge cases and edge cases and edge cases of things that didn't quite render correctly um that we decided we need to have github's rendering of their readme files really um and so the way that we approached that, uh, because it was the only way that we thought we could approach it at the time, was to um, grab the rendered HTML page that GitHub would serve for the README, find the README file, and then render that through onto our site. Um, and at the point that we deployed, or were just about to deploy that uh, feature out to the site, uh, one of our contributors, James Sherlock, um, mentioned that there was an API for this. And, and this is something that was news to us uh, that we didn't know about. Um, we did know that there was an API, a readme API, but what we didn't know is that if you specify a specific um, accepts header and tell it that you want a rendered version of the readme information, then it will give you this re um, uh, rendered um, HTML page in the correct way, not by scraping, doing it through the API, which is what we should have been doing. But this feature was implemented, changing it to the API version would have been quite a lot of work. And it was one of those things that we put in as an issue. In fact, I, I looked at the issue the other day and it's it's from 2021, uh, so, so a couple of years ago now. And um, yeah, we, we, we stuck it in as an issue and promptly kind of forgot all about it. <laughs> right up until GitHub changed their readme page design, which is always the problem if you scrape anything, then you're vulnerable to if the original uh, page design changes or something like that, then you you have a problem. Now, we had some code in there, so it fell back nicely and displayed a link to the readme instead of the actual readme. Uh, but I must admit, I, I desperately miss the readme files because it is a real pain to have to click through every readme file. Yeah, there's no there's no worse reminder. <laughs> I mean, it was really, it was really <laughs> harsh. I mean, I look at package pages often, but um, I'm not looking for the readmes every time, but this, you know, this last couple of days, as I, especially as I was working on it anyway to, to fix this, every time I looked at the package, I thought, oh, God damn it, <laughs> yeah. what should I be doing? Should I be preparing for the podcast or fixing this? <laughs> <What's the real laughs> <race? laughs> so it's kind of interesting that um, when I... When I first noticed this, it I noticed it almost immediately that GitHub must have deployed this change because I was researching packages for iOS Dev Weekly. It was on mm. Thursday last week that, that I first noticed this problem. And uh, it was instantly, intensely annoying to me that I couldn't read the readme files yeah. on the index. Yeah. And I, I talked to, with Sven about it a little bit. And um, 
And, and you kind of said, ah, it's okay. Well, well it's just okay for a few days. And I thought to myself, this is, I'm not sure it is okay for a few days. It's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad we shared the pain today. <laughs> we certainly did, yeah. <laughs> I think part of the difficulty with the readmes in particular is that um, it's one of those things where it's very easy to assume, well, this is always going to be a readme markdown file, right? But readmes actually don't have to be. They can be in a, a number they of don't. different formats. Mm -hmm. So it's it was really a bit tricky to find out where... It's actually nice that they have a fully rendered HTML version of it that you can get because that funnels all the readme formats through a single output format that we can then tap into. Um, because I, I remember, I vaguely recall looking into this at some point and stopping because my assumption that it would be a markdown file that we could easily ingest and embed because, you know, getting that and adopting it is easy. We're handling markdown already. But then when I saw, well, actually, <laughs> um, you know, it could be different formats. That's when it all stopped and, and um, became more complicated as, as it often does. Yeah. And, and of course, if we, you know, we, we still have uh, a, a plan. It's not a plan that we're working on actively, but we still have a plan to um, support other source code providers with the package index. And certainly GitLab would be a, a good contender for the second um, source code uh, source control provider to support. But every, every little kind of reach into the GitHub API like this uh, ties us more closely. So it makes that job a little harder. So I'm, I'm always conscious of that, but, uh, but this certainly, this definitely needs fixing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's to hoping that um, GitLab, which, which do have, they have a quite extensive API. We're using them um, in our build system. So we have some experience with the API and my hope is that everything will be available, but, but you never know, right? There's, yes. there's going to be a little bits and pieces that are going to be different or not there. And um, if when the time comes, it'll be interesting how that'll pan out. Absolutely. Right. So um, what other news do we have? I think worth mentioning is that we've crossed uh, 6,000 packages a couple of weeks ago, I think just after we recorded we did. the last episode. I actually, I managed to catch a screenshot of it when it was exactly at 6,000 as well. <laughs> we didn't have to edit the uh, package list down to 6,000 to make no, that happen. No, no, it, uh, <laughs> it was pure coincidence that I managed to just glance at it because um, I knew that it was imminent. And so I was checking it every uh, every day or so. Uh, and I happened to catch it when it was exactly um, uh, 6,000 packages. Well, there's always our left pad um, package to deal with off by one errors, right? That we can, <laughs> that we yes, can add exactly, and remove yes. as we need. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a that's a huge milestone. I mean, six thousand packages. It's uh, it's not an, an enormous number by some package managers, and I'm looking at uh, NPM uh, <laughs> when I say that. Uh, but it's certainly not an insignificant number, and it's it's something that uh, this is six thousand kind of manually create curated packages. This is six thousand packages that people have said this is something that I would like people to be aware of. Artisanal packages. Yes, you get them here. <laughs> in in Swift's defense with Codable, that nerfed probably around another twenty thousand packages that are JSON passes out of existence. So <laughs> those, I think there's a few of those still in there. Six yeah. K are actually worth a lot. <laughs> In fact, I did see one, uh, a, a new JSON package come through this week, actually. <laughs> there have been a couple, yes, but they, they do actually earn their existence by adding a, a couple of extra mm -hmm. bits. We, we talked about one, I think, last 
last time we recorded or the time before um dealing with those little little bits where codable is is falling short a bit for the moment or or just in general mm -hmm. i do have one other little bit of um uh, news that we might want to talk about um and that was a post on the uh, community showcase forum on the Swift forums, which I, just actually before we talk about the specific post, I would like to recommend that people check out that community showcase uh, forum. It doesn't get a lot of new posts, maybe two or three a week, uh, something like that. Um, but I get a huge amount of value out of reading the posts in that forum. It's a great place to learn about what's going on uh, in the community. Um, and I noticed um, it was actually the week before um, last, uh, but uh, there's a post by Neil Jones titled Swift on Risk Five uh, or Risk V, which I, I have been uh, I, I've been reading the Wikipedia article, and apparently it's, it is pronounced Risk Risk Five. Now, I didn't know a lot about RISC-V, um, and all I know now is the contents of the Wikipedia article, so I'm, I'm far from an expert on it. Um, but it's an open standard um, instruction set, uh, a reduced uh, instruction set um, that is being implemented into hardware and things like that. It's been around for quite a while, and um, Neil is working on a project to bring RISC-V support to Swift. Um, and in his own words, the RISC-V ecosystem is growing at a phenomenal rate and 2023 will see the introduction of many new, excite uh, new and exciting and powerful devices. Um, so, and it's, uh, at first I thought, well, is this kind of some embedded, mm. you know, instruction set that might suit an embedded computing or something like that? Um, but it's, it's, it's the whole range of things. It's from small boards up to really large workstations and things like that. So um, to continue our talks about platform support, we may, it's looking like we may need um, a, an enormous list of platforms at some point if this comes to fruition. Oh dear me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, just the, the the space on the matrix. It's it's also, I mean, we, we just need that stuff. Uh, um, you know, we need, um, we need testing for that. Um, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's great to see that Swift is branching out like that. Um, yeah. What's the vendor? Is that is that like vendor neutral? Are there specific vendors, it multiple is. vendors that implement machines? It's it, all, all I know is that it's, that it's an open standard, and um, and I believe most of the work on it is open source as well. So I I don't think I didn't see um, a vendor named when I was reading about it. Well, I think Apple should just be sending us any any hardware platform that uses Swift for compatibility testing and that should obviously include he tries to angle for a vision pro headset well that was oh, my, i wouldn't say no to that but i don't i don't believe that runs risk five it's clearly beneficial well but it's a platform we support so <laughs> it is and and i've seen a couple of readme's come through uh this week uh that said added support for vision os and things like that so oh yeah and we we should probably mention because at the time we recorded last time it wasn't live yet but we have um added that and it's completed the processing so we're all caught up um it's all there in the matrix and you can check there if you're not sure about your um, vision OS support of your package. Yeah, so, and it, it obviously depending on what the package is, a lot of them just automatically get vision OS support if, they, if they're not doing anything specific to um, uh, uh, UI kit or app kit or something like that. But, um, but yeah, you can check your package live on the site as of now. Yeah. 
Exactly. And the final bit we might want to mention is that the macro search is live now. And the way that works is you look for a product. Product colon macro will list you all the packages that ship with macros. Um, and we'd especially like to hear if you find this useful, if you're using this, we have a bit of, we've had a bit of metrics to see if that's being used because it is, the way we've done it is, isn't quite straightforward. It's a bit of a performance cost when we compute our materialized view for search. Um, so if there's not a lot of pickup of that, we might we might actually take that out again at some point if we have other things to add. So it's not a it's not a um, zero cost addition, but it is there. Uh, give it a try. Product call on macro to see what macro packages there are. And I think there's a there's a fair few. I think it was a dozen or so that that um, ship macros. Um, I think we've had metrics in there for whether people are using any kind of yeah. filters. So not obviously just searches, but um, filtering searches by platform or swift version or whatever um and i i actually don't know how often any of those are used my my gut feeling would be not very not often lot, but no, um no. yeah yeah that's why i'm why i'm curious and you know they they aren't used a lot and then the product macro search you know is even you know that's even a smaller slice of that already small right chunk and we pay an outsized price to compute that i mean it's not it's not terrible, but it's significant. So that's why I'm a bit um, concerned whether that's a long-lived thing. And it's also the way we had to implement that isn't ideal because we're we're actually saying macros are products, which they aren't in the strict sense of the package manifest because they're actually targets, and we're sort of faking it a bit. Um, it would be it would be easier if they were proper products, um, but that's really an implementation detail. What's important is to know if if people find this useful or if you can think of ways to expose this feature better. I mean, we do spell out the um, search extensions below the search box. So there's a little text explaining what you can do to search in more detail, but um, it doesn't seem to be used. Maybe that's because it's, you know, just doesn't come up often or people don't know. That's That's would be the interesting bit to know, whether that's just a, a case of discovery or it being really um, useful. I think I'm fairly happy with the way that we present the discovery of that. So obviously it's not there on that first uh, the homepage, but as soon as you search, it's it's right below the, the box there and there are links so that if you even tap on one of those links, uh, it pre-fills the search with a filter so that you can kind of get started with filtering. Um, I, I think that search, I think Google has effectively ruined us and what people do for search is they type in some words and they hit enter yeah yeah that's true the other thing is i'm i tend to especially in places i visit a lot i tend to um, turn blind to extra text on stuff so yes, I, I start true. overlooking yes. small print very easily um only the first time on a page and i'm trying to find my way around is, is when i look at stuff in more detail and then once i sort of know where stuff is on a page i really only zoom into the the bits that i that i actually need and and become blind to all all the stuff around it's really it becomes ornamental to a degree and that's it's fascinating how that works you're absolutely right in fact i was i was talking to somebody about their app the other day and uh, they'd sent me a test flight link and i had used the app uh, and pointed out something that i 
I got stuck with when I was using their app um, and they pointed out to me that it's written right <laughs> there on the screen that I got stuck on. <laughs> oh dear, yeah. That's a... <laughs> <laughs> that's the way it goes, isn't it? <laughs> and that's it. That's it's just the fact of uh, a fact of uh, of software is that we uh, or hu- it's not a software problem; it's a human yeah. problem. We yeah. we overlook things that that are not uh, directly um, uh, pointed out to us. But I do have a solution. I think there is uh, still support in most browsers for the um, uh, for the marquee tag. So I think we're going to use the marquee tag. The marquee tag. What is that? Oh, the, the marquee tag uh, was a tag that um, scrolled text oh, across the screen. Right in a ticker. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yes. So, look for that coming soon. Back to the nineties. Excellent. We might as well add a construction site little icon to it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, it is always under construction. You are correct. <laughs> it kind of is, isn't it? <laughs> right. Um, does that that wraps up the news section, doesn't it? I think it does. Yeah. Should we do some package recommendations? Let's do the packages. What do we have? Do you want to kick us off? Sure thing. Um, so my first package uh, this week is uh, by Sindre Sohus, and uh, it's a package called Doc Progress. Um, it's actually been around for five years now, uh, but I I only came across it this week, um, and it's a it's a it's a kind of niche i think both of both of my packages this week are kind of niche um but um it's kind of niche um in that it's for macOS applications only and it's for macOS applications that want to show progress of something when the window might not be visible so there are many different ways to show progress with this package uh and it render takes takes advantage of the fact that you can render um your icon in a macOS app uh, completely custom code. You know, you don't have to have an actual icon file at all. You can just draw into a context and that becomes the icon. Mm. Uh, and so what this package does is it has uh, a kind of the first, the, the basic one is has a progress bar across the bottom of the icon that fills up over over whatever progress that you're, uh, you're, you're sending it. Or there's one that outlines the icon with a squircle showing progress in that outline, uh, the circular ones, there's badges, um, there's badges with progress, there's badges with pie charts, there's lots of different <laughs> options for showing something. And it's the kind of thing that um, is not going to be useful when someone's actually looking at your application, but for really long running app, um, really long running processes where people will actually switch away from your app, this felt like a great way to keep people updated on whatever whatever it is that your app is doing nice yeah i'm actually staring like at one of these right now because my application folder has a progress bar underneath it i guess some app update died and it's been like this for right. days now <laughs> well certainly that one might need a reboot but yeah uh, but <laughs> that's how we fix things isn't it but once <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, but for ones that are not uh, terminally stuck, this feels like a, a nice solution. Nice. When you when you said doc progress, I first thought, oh, nice. This is this is going to tell you how far along you are with documenting your project. <laughs> and then you said five years. I was like, well, maybe it's something different. <laughs> that, that that would be doc C progress. Yeah. <laughs> right. My first package is one that people may have heard about because it's a new package by Apple. Um, it also showed up on the Swift blog and it's called Swift HTTP Types um, by Apple. And it's a package that collects foundational HTTP types like HTTP request, HTTP response, uh, and it's for use in client and server packages. And that's really nice because 
um, if you're using like different ways of interacting with HTTP, you, you've probably come across quite a number of different impl implementation of those. Um, and the goal here is to, to unify that a bit and use that package as the underlying package in Swift Neo and Foundation, for example, to make sure you have only one version of these around and, you know, sort of can, can use um, that one implementation and, and knowing how that works because they also often have like slightly different ways of setting headers, for example, and stuff like that. So that's that's really nice. And I guess also, you know, it's it's going to open up um, um, to be used in other server-side packages to adopt this um, either directly or automatically via Swift Neo. It's really nice to see more and more of these foundational packages pop up. And as individual packages, you know, not necessarily tied into foundation itself, but, you know, being there um, on their own. Uh, and of course, it's not just interesting for server-side packages. Clients also need to deal with this when they interface with um, server APIs, for instance. You know, I just mentioned setting up headers and that sort of stuff. So it's quite a package with reach, I'd say. Uh, and it's good, good to see it, good to have it. So I'm ashamed to say that I did see this blog post, um, but I actually haven't read it yet. <laughs> is, it, is, is this the kind of package um, that is going to be purely for use with server-side Swift and Swift Neo-based projects, or is it also something that you would use outside of that? No, I think you'd use it outside. I mean, I, I mean, it, this is this is going to be the underpinning types for foundations URL requests. So when you construct a URL request, oh, you'll you be using eventually. That's not the case right now, but it, it will. That's the that's one of the goals is to have that as the. Uh, um, HTTP currency type for URL requests. So when you construct a URL request, which you do when you use URL session or a LAMO of fire, course, yeah. you'll be using this package and it'll be the same type that you also use on, on the back end to, to drive that. So that's quite nice. Um, and so the package itself is just a representation of those request types. Yes, exactly. Which will then be adopted in those other packages that I mentioned. Yeah. That's great. Well, that's 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 good to see, and it's good to see that that things that because obviously there's the server side side of Swift, which is primarily uh, open source or entirely open source, maybe, um, and then there's the there's the kind of Apple side of Swift, which is AppKit and UIKit and SwiftUI, which is primarily closed source, and of course there are some exceptions, like the new Foundation uh, library is completely open source, and and that underpins everything in those platforms too. Um, but it's nice to see more things become open source that are going to be used in those uh, in those platforms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My next package uh, is. It's a package uh, by Darren Ford, and uh, it's a package that I have confidence that I will probably never, well, no, I'm not going to say confidence then probably. I have confidence that I'll never use this package. But what I really liked about this package is how uh, I could see the rabbit hole that Darren went down when implementing this. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a package called Color Palette Codable. And it is a codable uh, uh, implementation of um, color palette files. The original one is an ASE uh, file, which is an, an Adobe Swatch Exchange file, which is, if you read the, the, the README, um, this is actually the file that Darren needed to decode. So he ha obviously had a, a requirement to read one of these files. And just to, to be clear what's in these files, it's, it's a list of uh, colors, 
names for those colors um, in, that get formed into a palette of colors. So it's a group of colors. So he needed the Adobe Swatch Exchange file and implemented something and thought, well, maybe I'll make it a package. And then uh, that he said that, that this then extended to uh, ACO, which is an Adobe Photoshop color swatch file. And then it expanded to other types. And there's a smiley face in the readme because <laughs> he's implemented support for, I think, 12 or 13 different color palette uh, <laughs> implementations, including PaintShop profiles, which it was a real blast from the past. Do you remember PaintShop Pro on Windows? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I used Windows a bit, <laughs> but um, I switched to Macs in the in 91 so i i missed out on a lot there sure so i i was i was windows up until uh the early 2000s and um paint shop pro was was one of those applications that was absolutely essential to have on uh on your windows pc microsoft riff riff palette files <laughs> sketch palette which i've never even heard of um Corel draw, you know, oh, dearie, that one every remember, type, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every type of color, and I'm confident that that even Darren hasn't used <laughs> in anger <laughs> most of these. <laughs> so I thought, I, as I was reading this readme file, I, I I saw the rabbit hole you went down, Darren, and um, <laughs> and I I hope you came out the other side of it. Nice, it's it's one of those. So if I understand correctly, part of that was to make colors codable or or, or yeah well color palettes, palettes codable right. so it's the combination so and some of these palettes there's actually a, a it's a fantastic readme file for what for what the package does um there's a table about three quarters of the way down the readme file of all the different uh files that are supported what are they, are they binary are they text are they json text or whatever um do they support named colors do this sorry do they support named colors do they support named palettes do they group colors do they have color type support do they support color spaces so there's obviously a whole load of information uh that you can use in these palettes but uh, but no it's it's more than just a single color right the reason i'm asking is because i saw this pop pop up in the last week i think someone went to the labs at wwdc and asked well why isn't swift ui color codable so they can save um color choices to um the uh, what you call it the defaults um, user defaults and the answer is quite interesting because you know naively you think well how hard can it be right it's just three numbers right red blue green mm -hmm. but the answer was well actually <laughs> you know it what actually displays depends on your display, right? Calibration, that sort of stuff. So it isn't, yes. it isn't, and, and dark and light mode. So a color red uh, is slightly different depending on whether you have it in dark and light mode. I believe there's a variant uh, that SwiftUI gives you depending on, on context. So That's true. a color is, is context dependent. So when you save it, how much of that context do you pull in? You know, it's not just that. It's It's one of these great examples of, a thing that seems to be so simple at first glance where you'd say, well, why isn't this just codable? And then, oh, dear me. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's... If you want to learn more about this, uh, Mark Edwards has a two-part blog post on color spaces, uh, which is well worth the 
five to ten minutes it would take to uh, read it. Nice. We'll add that to the show notes as well. I I find stuff like that so interesting, and and I think that's that's one of those places where sort of experience shows a bit because you you become really a bit more resistant to this. Well, just do this because you've been there a number of times where you thought, well, of course, this is this is going to be easy, right? And then like days later, you think, oh, God, what did I get myself into? And it's I, I love this sort of stuff where where there's a very, you think, obvious first stab at a thing, and then it opens up this whole world of complexity yeah. that is so neatly hidden. And, and we sort of... Um, we sort of get tricked into this a bit as well with our systems that we like to use, right? I mean, it's one of these arguments, Linux or Unix versus the Mac, right? The Mac sort of tends to present itself as simple, but that's that's mostly because the complexity is hidden away or choices have been made on your behalf to deal with the complexity, but it's still there. Other systems make other choices and and still have that expose that complexity to you. I mean that there's a there's it's a trade-off, right? Because some people prefer to deal with the complexity themselves and not be handheld in that way. And I, I find that really interesting how how you know that's just a, a fact of life, right? Complexity is just there. It's a it's a matter of how you how you deal with it really. Yeah. Yeah. And color, there's plenty of complexity in color. Oh yeah. So my next package is called Aoxiang by the user with the handle Isaacid, I-S-A-C-E-D. And uh, Aoxiang is a Chinese term, uh, apparently translates into saw or hover. This is a small HTTP web server package. Um, and I think it's interesting, not just in, in that space where you probably use something uh, more heavyweight than, than this package, but it's interesting as a prototype or testing tool. Imagine you're writing an iOS app and you need to stand up a service that you can connect to, for instance, if you're testing on device and you have no no other or better means of injecting um, um, JSON um, codable structs, for instance, for for um, connecting to. And you, know, you can stand this up as an endpoint you control. Um, so typically you might use a Python package, for instance, which has a couple of tools like this where you can easily do this, or I think Node as well, Node Express is a term that comes to mind. I don't have a lot of experience with Node, but um, this is sort of the Swift equivalent to that. And that's that's really nice. I tried this, you can actually run it in the playground. So you can bring this up. It has a nice um, API, a closure-based syntax, so you can write little root handlers. Um, so it's very easy to stick something in. And then obviously Swift, as an example, is, is very easy because you, you can use the same Codable structs there that you use in your client app. That makes it then very easy to stand this up and deploy. It has no dependencies as well. That's that's nice, and um, that makes it easy to use in in you know, like scripts or a playground. So that's a package called uh, Aoxiang um, by Isaachead. Um, and I should also mention at this at this point there was another package that does a very similar thing, which is called Swifter by Damien. Uh, Karolakowski, um, which is a package that has been around for quite a while. That's nine years in development, 99 contributors, uh, which is also a package like this that has no dependencies um, and, and works in the playground or in scripts. 
So if, for instance, these are packages you can use with um, Swift SH, the, the uh, Swift runner mm -hmm. uh, by Max Hole. So uh, two nice packages for standing up a, a uh, little web service for testing and prototyping. I think most languages have something like this. There's a there's a one-liner that I use with the with the Ruby executable that will that will from one line on the command line take uh, start an HTTP server and uh, point it at a set of files in a directory. Now this is obviously more than that because you can actually define uh, not just serve files but define actual code to execute when uh when these requests come in uh, and it's also worth noting um that you can that it supports async await as well which is great so you can uh you can fire off uh, async commands on your requests as yeah, well yeah exactly yeah really nice little package that's great. And I think that pretty much brings us to the end of another episode. Um, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And um, uh, if there is any feedback or any any packages that you would like us to uh, take a look at on the show, uh, please do uh, drop us a line. The easiest way to get in contact with us is um, through our Discord server, which if you go to the um, readme file of the main Swift Package Index server repository, you'll find a link to the Discord there. Uh, so we'd love to have you take part in that. And um, we will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Yep. See you in two weeks. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.